0: Well, do turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2 and to that passage we read together a minute minute ago. Uh, For those of you who have not been with us in our journey through this little book of Acts, um, let me fill you in that this is actually a part of a two part work, one work divided into two parts, in which Luke is uh, setting about to write a narrative. He tells us of the things that have been accomplished among us, and uh, in The second part, that he has been writing about the things that Jesus began to do and to teach and now continues to tell us about the things which Jesus does from his position now as the enthroned and exalted and ascended and reigning Lord of history and Lord of the nations. So what we are to expect as we read the book of Acts is that we will see the acts of Jesus through the apostles especially, and in the church in the days that Luke is recording. And uh, chapter 2 of Acts describes this momentous day that we know as the day of Pentecost, a unique and unrepeatable day in which things happen which we need the Old Testament to unpack for us, things like cloud and fire and foreign languages spoken in the dialects of people who are in the crowd, which have caused a lot of uh, upset, disturbance, questioning among the crowds of people thronging Jerusalem for this great festival. And then Peter is set about the task of explaining what it is all about. And uh, in his first sermon, we might call it the first Christian sermon ever to be preached, Peter sets out the stall and gives us, if if you will, a means by which we might understand everything else that's going to happen in the book of Acts and understand where we are in the scheme of things and the big picture of the story of what God is doing in the world, where we are in that story, and how to understand and come to terms with the person of Jesus Christ as we know him and as he is so often preached to us. And so that's what he sets about doing. He starts off, the the apostolic message is at the very heart of Christianity. Chapter 1 has been taken up with uh, Peter's introduction and with the completing of the number of the 12 apostles who were the eye and ear witnesses of all that Jesus said and did. And so Peter stands as the leader of that group of apostles and explains what is going on. And if I can just give you a summary of where we've come so far, the apostolic message is the Word of God. He makes that clear by spelling it out from the prophet Joel that uh, this has all happened in fulfillment of Scripture and that what we see here in uh, Acts chapter 2 is the beginning of the last days. These are the last days. They're not the last of the last days, but they are the last days. God's end time promises are coming to fruition. They've come to fruition in the person of Jesus, and in particular in the exaltation of Jesus to his throne. So the apostolic message is the word of God. The the apostolic message is the gospel of God. In other words, there's news involved in the apostolic message. And what the Apostle Peter does in this chapter is, he sets the, the scene really for all gospel preaching from then to now, and that is that it is about Announcing news, and it's about proclaiming news. This is good news. It, it isn't the reading of the law, it isn't uh, the declaration of rules, it isn't any of that stuff. It is the, the proclamation, the announcement of some events that have occurred which are of interest to you. They're of interest to you as an individual. They change your life. They change your life either for good or for bad. They have an influence on you whether you even realize it or not. These events that we announce as we announce the good news of the gospel. And what we're going to look at this evening is a third part of this message of his, and that is to see that the, the apostolic message is not only the word of God and the gospel of God, it's news, but it's also the power of God. It has an effect it has an effect it does something it it achieves something it accomplishes something in the hearts and lives of people now the story so far is that in his explanation of who jesus is uh, the apostle peter has described his uh, public life which was known was familiar to these people to whom he speaks remind yourself as you read it this takes place within 6 weeks of jesus death and resurrection people who are in this crowd know the stories Most people in this crowd would know somebody who had been healed by him, somebody whose uh, blindness had been removed by him, somebody who had been there when he raised the dead man, Lazarus, from the tomb two miles away from Jerusalem. People in that crowd, you could talk to about anybody, and they knew somebody who knew somebody who had been impacted by the ministry of Jesus. And so he starts off with Jesus' credentials. You know this man, he says. You know the kind of man he was, you know what he did. And I want to say to you that those were God's attestations, Peter says. God was behind all those things that he did. Not the devil, not demons. God was behind those things. And then what happened? You crucified him. Peter doesn't pull his punches. You're to blame. You could have stopped it. You could have put a foot on the brake. You could have urged your leaders not to do it. But you didn't. You stood back and some of you went even further. You cried out, crucify him. You... You had him killed. You were responsible for the death of God's Messiah. And then the third part of his talk he talks about his present position. He's raised from the dead, and God has highly exalted him. God has exalted him so high, says Peter, that he's doing he's doing in, in your sight today, in your hearing today, he's doing this amazing thing that indicates That all of those promises in the Old Testament about the Holy Spirit coming have now been fulfilled. You were here. I mean, you can put it in your diary. You were here in Pentecost this year, and you saw you saw the evidences of what God did at Sinai. You heard the thunder. You saw the, the 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 pillars of fire falling on people. You heard the languages spoken in your dialect, wherever you've come from in the Roman Empire, you've heard your, with your own ears the mighty works of God, and you've seen something no one else is going to see ever in their lifetime. You've seen these things, and that's evidence that Jesus Christ has been exalted to the place of all power. He's is seated, seated on David's throne, and he rules, and he reigns over all. You have been here, Peter's saying to these people, you saw this, and you can put it in your diary. I was there the day the Spirit fell at Pentecost. Now, this raises a question. If Jesus Christ has been exalted, if Jesus Christ has been put in the place of all power in the universe, it leaves me with a problem it may leave you with this problem, and it's this. Shouldn't Jesus Christ then have dealt with evil? by now. If he really is exalted to the place of all power and authority in the universe, has there been any evidence that he has made any serious attempt to put an end to all evil and all that is bad in the world in the period since then? Has not this claim that Jesus Christ is the exalted Lord lost all credibility? Peter's argument, I think, hangs on a quotation from the book of Psalms that he gives us here when he talks about God, the Lord saying to his anointed one, sit at my right hand until, until I make your enemies your footstool. In other words, that there was to be an interval between exaltation and subjugation, exaltation to the place of power, and then the exercise of that power in terms of judgment and in terms of rule. That's certainly how the Apostle Paul understood it. Jesus must reign until all his enemies are put under his feet. And so I think the teaching is there's a period, a hiatus, between the exaltation and the application of that to the world. Now, here's the point that Peter makes here. He illustrates it here. Why should this hiatus be there? Why is this there? This gap there? What, what is happening in the middle in this meantime? And the answer is good news. It's good news for you. It's good news for me. Because we wouldn't be sitting here today if this were not true. In this period, what's, what's not happened is this that he has not gone immediately to judge the world. That would have been his right. It would have been absolutely natural for him immediately to have gone to judge the world and to bring about the great things that, that uh, Peter has described earlier in this sermon, the last days, the cosmic convulsions that will soon come, the great, resplendent, glorious day of the Lord that is frightening when it dawns on humanity. But he hasn't rushed to that day. No, on this day... The good news gets out to the world and he quotes from the the scriptures. And he says, in these days, guess what? Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Verse 21. That's what's happening on this day. This is not the day for judgment. This is the day for good news. Whoever you are, wherever you are, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And if that's true then, it's vital that we get the name right vital that, God, that, God's, that we get God's name right, and that's not an academic or a theoretical affair. It's a matter of life or death to know who God is, to know who we are, to know what God's covenantal stipulations and sanctions are under which we relate to him. Now, who is God? Well, he, is, he said, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's at the beginning of his sermon. And then at the end of his sermon, he comes up with this great statement in verse 36, that all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, him, both Lord and Christ, both Lord and Messiah. Taking the very titles of God himself, he is Lord and he is Messiah, this Jesus, whom you crucified. And there you understand what it is that hits them in verse 37 when they heard this. They are cut to the heart. Do you see the point that Peter is making here, having led them down this story, having reminded them of who Jesus was and his credentials, having declared the fact of his death, and then this news of his resurrection. They knew the tomb was empty. Jerusalem was abuzz with Wondering, who did this? How could this be done? And now he's declared the resurrection. He said that he's an eyewitness of the resurrection. Now he says, God has sent forth this very thing that you see today, this remarkable thing that is happening today on this day of Pentecost. And he says, God has made this Jesus, Lord and Christ. This Jesus, whom you crucified. hit them like a sledgehammer because if this Jesus was in fact the name and if this Jesus was in fact both Lord and Christ they had crucified their Messiah and they crucified the owner of everything the creator of everything the master of everything the implications were enormous. No wonder they're cut to the heart, many of them in the crowd. What will we do? What is there to do? When you have committed deicide, you have committed the death of God. Absolutely imperative, then, that people in that position hear the gospel command. You see, it, it isn't enough merely for us to talk about Jesus in a vague sense, because there are many Jesuses in the world, many perceptions of who he is. And so the apostolic gospel is quite specific. The Jesus they talk about is historical, the one who really lived, really died, really rose, really ascended in the arena of real history that happened. And the Jesus they talk about is theological. That is, his life, death, resurrection, and ascension all have saving significance. And this Jesus is our contemporary. He lives, he reigns to bestow salvation on those who believe in him. So the apostles told the same story of Jesus at these three levels, as historical event witnessed by their own eyes, as having theological significance interpreted by the scriptures, and as a contemporary message confronting men and women with their need of a decision. You must do something about this Jesus. And our our job today stays the same thing. That's the same job we have as they did then. Well, what is the gospel command? Well, first of all, it's a command for a change of mind. He just says, repent. And he echoes the language of John the Baptist and Jesus. The difference is this. That the gospel repentance has to do with the announcement of The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Whenever you read the Gospels, it's the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Therefore, repent. But in Acts, repentance has to do with what is proclaimed about Jesus. And that stems from the fact that so much that was promised with respect to the end times kingdom of God has been fulfilled in Jesus. His death, resurrection, ascension bring to realization the Old Testament expectations for Israel and the nations. Every promise is fulfilled in Him. Every work achieved by Him declares Him to be the only Savior there is from the coming judgment. So therefore, what is needed is a radical repentance, a change of mind about Jesus. This is what happened to the Apostle Paul. He changed his mind. I don't think about Him according to the flesh. There was a time I did think about Him the way everybody else thinks about Him, but there came a day when my thinking about Jesus was turned around. He repented of the way he thought about Jesus. When Peter is saying to this crowd, repent, he's saying change the way you think about him. And changing the way you think about Jesus then involves changing the way you think about yourself in relation to Jesus. You see, when, when he says to these people, this Jesus whom you crucified, he was helping them to see their responsibility for his death. Now, the, now, their responsibility is direct, these people, many of them in that crowd to whom Peter is preaching. They lived then. They had corporate responsibility then for the death of Jesus. Later on in Acts, when Peter's preaching to other Jews, he doesn't say the same thing to them because they weren't there then. So it's wrong to accuse all Jews of the death of Jesus. But these people on that day, they were responsible. This Jesus, you crucified and uh, some of them wouldn't have felt guilty about that but what Peter is saying is they have an objective guilt whether they feel guilty or not. A lot of people when they come to court at least so I discover when I watch CSI on television that there's a lot of people don't feel guilty for the things they do. Uh, At least they don't on CSI and I think it's true in real life as well. They don't really feel any guilt for Even though they're objectively guilty, they've done the thing. They don't feel anything, any guilt for what they've done. And many people don't feel any guilt. I'm sure many people then didn't feel any guilt for having been responsible for the death of Jesus. But Peter says they are objectively guilty and they need to change their mind. So these leaders and residents of Jerusalem needed a profound change of conviction and attitude if they were going to escape the wrathful judgment to come. And it takes this kind of change to happen in a person if they're going to call on the name of the Lord. Because that phrase epitomizes the prayer of dependence that God answers with salvation. Because everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, verse 21 says. Because this is God's plan. Isaiah chapter 45, God says, turn to me, turn to me and be saved. All the ends of the earth. That's what he wants us to do, to turn to him. So there's a call for a change of mind and also a change of allegiance. Repent, he says. What shall we do? Repent and be baptized, every one of you. Repentance is to be matched and manifested in baptism. Here, baptism is not so much a matter of faith as an act of allegiance. It is a public transfer of allegiance. Here, for the very first time in history, Messiah's community is being marked out Circumcision, the mark of the old community, is being replaced by baptism as the sign and seal of God's promises to his people. Women, as well as men, are given the same sign and seal by God of this saving change. And the reasons for the change are obvious. Circumcision applied only to men because it pointed forward to the arrival of the male seed. The male offspring, the Messiah who would come into the world, the cutting and the blood pointed to the cutting off of the life of the Messiah. Circumcision pointed forward to Messiah's coming, whereas baptism, on the other hand, points to the effects of his coming. It points to the cleansing and the renewal, the freshness, the new thing that comes as a result of the Messiah's being in the world. Now, when it comes to talking about baptism, I notice in the commenta- commentaries that very little is said. We kind of glide over it. My experience of speaking in the circuit of evangelical conferences and conventions over the years has taught me that whenever you're speaking in one of these things, if there's the word baptism is in the text, you merely nod at it and, if possible, don't even pronounce it and just keep going because it's not, it's not kosher, really, to talk about baptism. It's a shame, really. That we're so silent on the subject. Other times when people talk about baptism, and I remember when I was being uh, prepared for baptism classes uh, as a young man, uh, we got a lot of information about Second Temple Judaism fed to us, which was very interesting, but it seems to me that unless you had somebody to tell you that stuff, you wouldn't know it just from reading the Bible. So I want to just say to you this evening, if you just stick to the Bible for a moment and ask yourself, where in the Bible is water and spirit linked together? Where would you go? You would probably go to Genesis 1, wouldn't you? Because there's, there's the Spirit of God hovering over the depths, over the water, the unformed world that God has made. And then you would go to Noah. For well, there the breath of life, the Spirit of God, causes the waters to to go down as as Noah and his family are saved. And in fact, Peter, Peter himself, later on, we know this, in the New Testament, Peter is going to point us back to the story of Noah, and he's going to use that and say that Noah was saved. Baptism is the antitype of what the flood was all about. The flood was pointing forward to baptism. And uh, Peter and his family were saved through that action, through the judgments. Uh, We find it Moses, Moses and uh, the crossing of the Red Sea. Paul refers to that. He says there's a type of baptism. They went through the Red Sea. They were were under the cloud and they were through the sea. And that's a type of baptism that, that, that God brings them by His Spirit, by the great cloud of fire, the fire of God, the Spirit of God, leads the people of God through the waters He takes them into the promised land. And you find the same thing in uh, in, uh, the Gospels. John the Baptist, when he's baptizing, there's the threat of judgment, there's the promise of salvation. Baptism, wherever it's performed, carries with it both a threat and a promise. The promises of God, the promises of God, the promise is of all of the promises of God, packaged together and represented by baptism. But also the threats of God. Because uh, you can reject what baptism points to. You can reject the message of salvation inherent in the baptism of a baby, or the baptism of children, or the baptism of an adult. You You can reject what is pointed to in that action. The gospel that is proclaimed to you in that action, the promises of God that are proclaimed in that action, you can reject all of that. And let me tell you, if you've been baptized and you reject the message of the gospel, proclaimed in your baptism and brought home to you by your parents and repeated to you by your church family, then that becomes a means of judgment to you. Peter says to these people in the day of Pentecost, be baptized in the name of Jesus, that name that is theologically loaded in the New Testament. A name, the name that has divine authority, that can give blessing to people, that can save people. The gospel command is: repent, be baptized. And the gospel promise is twofold: You'll receive two things: the first, the forgiveness of sins. John the Baptist, when he came, was preparing Israel for the coming of the Messiah and his baptism with the Holy Spirit. And he clearly associated the Messiah's coming with the fulfillment of Bible promises about a definitive forgiveness of sins in the end time. Jeremiah, it says this. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my law within them. I will be their God. They'll be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor or each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for... I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. That was one of the great promises of the new covenant. When Isaiah is talking about this, he talks about the fact that God is going to take our sins and our iniquities and is going to remove them as far from us as is possible to do. As far as the east is from the west, it's as far as you can imagine getting something away from you. And he will cast them into the depths of the sea. And he'll put up a sign saying, No fishing in these waters. Nobody will ever dredge up that sin once it's been removed from you and sunk in the sea. As far away as possible to be. It's one of the great blessings of the new covenant. And do you get what's being promised here? What's being promised here to these people and to you and I is this, that, that no matter how undeserving, these people who had crucified the Lord of glory... They're guilty in a way you're not, crucifying the Lord of glory, being responsible for that, that these people, though undeserving, could know through the merits of another the unshakable stability in the midst of a changing and decaying world. They could find security and pardon through the personal relationship with God formed by the undying Spirit of God. They could learn to say, as the psalmist said, He is at my right hand. I shall never be moved. Because the obstacle to a relationship with God, permanent relationship with God, would be finally and forever removed for those who trust in Jesus. Peter proclaims a forgiveness of sins that is absolutely certain because of Messiah's death, resurrection, and ascension. And not only the forgiveness of sins, he proclaims promises, the gift of the Spirit. We mustn't get all hung up in the order of things here. Uh, I I don't think we're meant to see any artificial gap between forgiveness and the Spirit or between baptism and the Spirit uh, or whatever. The Spirit may well work before, during, after, around baptism, but the Spirit will do his work. But the promise of the Spirit here reminds us of Jesus' promise to those who pray Remember, he said to people in, uh, earlier on in Luke's writings in chapter 11 of the Gospel If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give you the Holy Spirit, if you ask him? So here is the gift of the Spirit. Gift, you notice, not the gifts of, but the gift of the Spirit, not the gifts that he gives in addition, but the gift of he himself. This is what he gives to the believer. This gift is connected to the idea in the passage here of calling on the name of Jesus for salvation. That's what the gift of the Spirit involves. God has given you the gift of the Spirit if you have called on the name of the Lord Jesus for salvation. In many ways, the very calling is due to the gift of the Spirit. So the the Spirit is not simply given to equip believers to serve but to make it possible for someone to experience salvation. It's absolutely vital. This is the language we find in Isaiah 32, until the Spirit is poured out from us on high. And what happens? The wilderness becomes a fruitful field. If you think of your life as a wilderness, a barren place, a dry place, it becomes a fruitful field. The fruitful field becomes a forest. In other words, where there is life and where there is some evidence of life, it becomes absolutely abundant life. And then there's justice dwelling in the wilderness and righteousness abiding in the fruitful field and the effect of righteousness being peace and the result of righteousness being quietness and trust forever. These are the abundant evidences of the presence of the gift of the Holy Spirit. And in the passage, the Holy Spirit is given to administer the benefits of Christ's saving work to believers, whether individually or corporately. He makes possible the conversion of men and women. So there's the promise that he gives, the promise of the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. They're part, part of the package. You repent if you turn. You Make good in your baptism if you've been baptized. This is what it's all about. Have faith in the Lord Jesus. And what was pointed to in your baptism becomes real for you, makes it real. Well, he goes on to press the thing home. He says, this promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord, our God, calls to yourself. And it's rich with Old Testament background here. This little phrase, you and your children, you find it all over the Old Testament. You find it in the story of Noah. We know that Peter is going to look to the story of Noah for for his uh, picture of baptism type of baptism. So, so we, we can imagine that perhaps that's in his mind, but certainly it's there in the story of Noah uh, when God said to Noah, to his sons with him, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your children forever. We see it in Genesis uh, 17. You know, when God comes to make promises to Abraham, he says to Abraham, I- I'm going to do this, that, and the other thing for you, and I'm going to do it for you and for your children. And in chapter 17 of of Genesis. This is very, very clear, because in chapter 17, we know that Abraham is already in a right relationship with God. Chapter 15, he's been justified by faith. And, and in chapter 17, God comes to him and he says, now, uh, you're in a right relationship with me, and I want you to come out and see all the things I'm going to do. What wonderful things I'm going to do, and I'm going to make a covenant with you. Special arrangement with you. It's going to be eternal. This one will not be conditional in anything you do. It's an unconditional covenant. God himself is going to do the whole deal. It's going to be absolutely unconditional. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring, after you throughout their generation. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your children after you. Every male among you be circumcised. Circumcised. Well, isn't circumcision the old covenant sign? Baptism is the new covenant sign. Peter, Peter, you're getting us confused here. If we're not meant to pull this stuff together, and if we're not meant to think about baptism as the New Testament equivalent of Old Testament circumcision, then you're not really helping us here by quoting from the Old Testament at this point. Peter, we've already discovered, is absolutely loaded with Old Testament. He's been thinking about it. Jesus has been teaching it to them for six weeks. Their minds have been opened by the Holy Spirit to understand all the things and remember all the things Jesus has taught them. So his mind is absolutely bursting with the Bible. And so using this quotation completes the link between baptism and circumcision as signs of God's grace in both eras of God's work. These Jews listening to Peter would immediately think of the covenant of grace with Abraham. And had Peter and the early church leaders intended to teach that under the new covenant that God was less generous than under the old, then he would have spelt that out. He would not have said this promise is for you and for your children. But apparently, even under the new covenant, God works with families. And baptism is the covenant sign that he works with families. That God is no less generous in the new covenant than he was in the old. And uh, while your baptism as an infant didn't save you, It points to your salvation. It points to the grace of God that is undeserved, that is given to you freely, and very often, very often precedes your understanding, precedes your faith. Promises to believers and their children, but also it's for all those who are far off. And here again is a word from the Old Testament, where in Isaiah 57. Isaiah speaks peace to the far to those who are far and those who are near. And uh, this language is picked up by Paul in Ephesians, when he says, In Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He came and he preached peace to you who were far off and to those who were near. So there's a gospel promise forgiveness of sins, the gift of the Spirit, it's for you and for your family. And for everybody who's far off around the world, gospel promise. Now, the last thing that we see is the gospel impact. Well, Peter says these things, and then with other words, we're told with other words, he said, save yourself. In other words, he gets really passionate. He's into this, verse 40. With many other words, he bore witness continue to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. In other words, you couldn't just be quiet. You can't be impassionate. You cannot be dispassionate in the proclamation of the gospel when people's eternal destinies are at stake. You can't just pretend. You can't play games. I'm trying to be straight with you this evening. If you don't know the Lord Jesus, I want to be absolutely straight with you. You're Your destiny, where you will be 10 million years from tonight, hangs on what you do with what you've heard in this room tonight. And the greatest miracle that Jesus performed, a work greater than any he had achieved in his lifetime of miracle working, was performed from His throne in heaven in reaction to the proclamation of His good news. And you can read about it in verse 47. Those who received His word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Do you know what's happened? The greatest miracle, the greatest sign and wonder performed by the risen Lord Jesus was performed on the day of Pentecost. He had said it. I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. This is where it begins. Because the Word of God that is the gospel of God is also the power of God. It actually affects a change in the hearts and lives of people. It does it. It does the business. It does the work. It's not simply something extraneous. It does the business. It has has an effect upon people. The, The preaching of the Word of God is the Word of God. And what does the Word of God do? God says, let there be light, and there's light. God says to Ezekiel, preach to the bones. And an army arises. And I fully expect as I preach to you that there will be in this room miracles of grace. As God calls you, draws you, brings you to himself through the very word that we speak here. Because that's what he does. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing by the word of God. So we find this multicultural group of people drawn together on the day of Pentecost. The question is, I suppose, as we end, for the church, whether we really believe that the Word can do the work. The existence of the church is due to the Word. It's been rightly called the Creatura Verba, creation of the Word. Herman Bavinck puts it like this, the word of God is always a word of God, that is, never just a sound, but a power. Not mere information, but also an accomplishment of his will. By his word, Jesus quiets the sea, heals the sick, casts out demons, raises the dead. By his word, converts, transforms, changes, saves. Father, we pray that you would take your word, drive it home to our hearts and minds this evening, for your glory's sake. Amen.